Welcome to the Baptist Health Talk Doc to Doc podcast, a conversation for physicians by physicians, providing insight on the latest in medical practice, research, technology, and innovation in healthcare. Join Baptist Health experts as they offer practical advice for clinicians covering a wide range of specialties. Cancer, neuroscience, orthopedics, and cardiovascular care are just some of the timely discussions you'll find right here on the Doc to Doc podcast. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Alessandro Villa. I'm the Chief of Oral Medicine and Oral Oncology at Miami Cancer Institute. And I'm Dr. John Diaz. I'm the Chief of Gynecologic Oncology and the Director of Robotic Surgery for Baptist Health. And thanks for joining our Doc to Doc podcast today. Today, we're going to talk about human papilloma virus and the connection with cancer. So let me start off about giving a little introduction on what is HPV. Um, HPV is the most common sexually transmitted infection in in our country, in the United States. Uh, There are over 100 different types of HPV, and about one-third of the HPV type can spread through skin-to-skin contact. And this is April 2023. It's the uh, Oral Cancer Awareness Month. And we are really excited to be here today to talk about the connection between HPV and throat cancer and many others. Um, Oral HPV is mostly transmitted with um, oral sex and possibly also in some other different ways. And it's a very common infection Uh, in the United States. About 10% of men have oral HPV in their lifetime. But luckily, we have a strong immune system that is able to fight some of these infections. Um, HPV can affect the back of the mouth and the throat and cause most of the oropharyngeal cancer. So the oropharynx and base of the tongue cancer. And actually, uh, three years ago, the numbers of HPV related oropharyngeal cancers have surpassed the rates of cervical cancer in the United States. And we know now that HPV is causing most of the oropharyngeal cancers, about 70% of the oropharyngeal cancers. And it takes about 10 to 15 years, at least in the oropharyngeal area, after being infected with some of the high-risk types of HPV uh, for the cancer to develop. And um, when when we think about some of the symptoms of oropharyngeal cancers, these may include um, persistent sore throat. Sometimes patients can present with a earaches, uh, changes in voices or swollen lymph nodes. Uh, usually usually uh, unilateral swelling in the neck can be an alarming sign uh, for oropharyngeal cancer, HPV related. And luckily today uh, we have an HPV vaccine that can prevent many of the HPV related cancers. Um, HPV can cause not only oropharyngeal cancer and cervical cancer, but some of the anal cancer, penal cancer, and vaginal cancers. So, John, why don't you um, maybe tell us a little more about the connection between HPV and cervical cancer and, and take it from there? Yeah, thanks for the intro. You know, we've known for a long time the association between HPV and cervical disease, right? Women for a long time have been encouraged to get their pap smears, Uh, every year in the past to prevent cervical cancer. Uh, And we've known this relationship for a long time. Although, interestingly, I'm old enough to remember when we first made that link and and people at the time thought it was impossible. They had a virus that would cause cancer. Uh, But in fact, uh, over 98% of cervical cancers are caused by HPV infection. Um, 
in the United States, cervical cancer, which is what we're ultimately worried about uh, when it comes to HP infection of the genital tract for women, is really uncommon. There are only about 14,000 cases a year. Uh, despite the fact, like you said, almost all of us are exposed at one point in our life to HPV, over 85% of the U.S. population. Uh, and as you said, you know, our immune system is able to clear it. So it's very common that we are exposed to HPV. It's very uncommon in the United States that HPV progresses to cervical cancer. And in large part, that's because of the robust screening program we have with pap smear and now HPV screening. So most of the cervical cancers we see here in the U.S., are unfortunately women who come from outside the United States, and we see a lot of that in Miami, women that come from Cuba, Haiti, other parts of the world where they don't have these robust screening programs, or sadly, women who live within the U.S. and either don't have access to healthcare, are underinsured, or um, get busy with life, and so miss their required screening. And so earlier I said that, you know, we used to get pap smears every year. Um, we've kind of done ourselves a little bit of disservice. So now we've changed those guidelines, right? And depending on your age and other risk factors, uh, the recommendations may be for you not to get a pap smear uh, every three years or every five years. And so we saw this with COVID, right? So it's every five years, you should get your pap smear depending on your age. Uh, year five comes along and, you know, things come up. You have a job change, maybe you lose insurance. Your mom is sick. You're taking care of things in the family. And before you know it, it's now six, seven, eight years since your last pap smear. So now you're outside of that screening window. Uh, and so we saw that happen a lot with COVID. After COVID, we had a big rush of women who unfortunately couldn't get access for their screening. Uh, and we saw an uptick in cervical cancer. So it's so important to get your routine screening the way it's recommended. And I tell women, even though you may not necessarily need a pap smear every year, you still need to see your gynecologist every year. You still need external exam, you need an internal exam, you know, and then let you and your gynecologist decide whether it's time uh, for that pap smear screening. And the other interesting part has been this uh, HPV screening, you know. Um, so now we use not only pap smears, which gets physical cells, we scrape off the cervix to look under the microscope for any abnormalities. We're now actually looking to see if women are carrying a uh, high viral load of this high-risk HPV. So you mentioned that there are several different types of HPV. The ones we really worry about are those high-risk HPVs that are more likely to develop into precancerous and ultimately cancerous lesions. And so we have this HPV screening that can be done at the same time as your pap smear. Uh, there's some evidence saying that maybe we can do HPV screening instead of a pap smear. And that's really interesting for women who are unable to get to their gynecologist or again, these underserved rural areas you can potentially send women a home kit. They can do a vaginal or cervical swab for this HPV and then send that into the lab. And if that's negative, then great. If it's abnormal, then you may have to make the track from wherever you live to actually get seen by your gynecologist. And so that's been an exciting development. Um, you mentioned the HPV vaccine. Um, and as you know, the United States, as far as a developed nation, has done a really poor job in HPV vaccination uptake. Other developed countries, Australia, have done a much better job than us in getting that. And so one of the things we struggle with is how do we get that information out there to parents, to primary care physicians, and to pediatricians? You know, um, I have two boys, uh, and they both received their HP vaccine. So that was one of the struggles, the thought that this is only for women. It's not. It's for boys and girls. Uh, thanks to COVID now, everyone's a vaccine expert. So everyone's very familiar with the idea of herd immunity. Um, and so this is not new. Um, in the past, you know, there was kind of maybe a negative connotation. Oh, I'm going to 
tell my you know 11 year old daughter to get a vaccine that protects you against a sexually transmitted disease am i encouraging intercourse and and that's not the case you know the whole idea though is we want to get this vaccine on board before your child is exposed to hpv you know before they become sexually active right and for women um thankfully we have effective screening we have pap smears which can help prevent cervical cancer but for men the HPFC protects them against general warts, but protects them against head and neck cancers. And Asano, maybe you can talk about this, for which we really don't have any effective screening. Is that correct? Yeah, you, you bring up an excellent point. I think that, um, unfortunately, one of the challenges that we have for oropharyngeal cancers is that we don't have an effective screening mechanism available. Um, patients, usually when they see the dentist in their in the dental office or primary care physician, at times they perform an oral cancer screening examination. Uh, luckily, the oral cavity is easily accessible to clinicians. Uh, patients can also take a look inside their mouth and check for any bumps or sores that don't heal. But the story is a little different for the back of the mouth, the, the back of the throat, and oropharyngeal cancers in general, because there's no approved screening available. Um, as I mentioned earlier, some of the signs of these cancers include a, a persistent sore throat that doesn't go away or a referred earache or a swelling unilateral bump on the neck, in the neck. But we're still lacking of an effective screening tool available. So that underlines even more the importance of being vaccinated against HPV because the HPV vaccine really can prevent the majority of these cancers. And Unfortunately, today in several states in the United States, only about 50% of adolescents are, have completed the HPV cancer vaccine series. That leaves about half of the other adolescents incompletely or fully unvaccinating against those can these cancers that are caused by, uh, by HPV. And um, just a little bit of history about the HPV cancer vaccine. It was approved by the FDA back in 2006, so in 2006. And in the 17 years since the approval, we know that it's proven to be safe. It's highly effective. And, and therefore, when we see such low vaccination rates, it's a little concerning because this is one of the only two cancer prevention vaccines that we have available. And we know that persistent infection with high-risk types of HPV, for example, HPV 16 or 18, are now the leading cause of throat cancer and about 3 to 5% also of oral cavity cancers. Um, so hopefully in the future, we'll have some screening tool available also for oropharyngeal cancer. Um, the visual exam is the best screening tool that we have so far for oral cavity cancers. Uh, but we know from published research that current vaccination coverage um, could prevent many of these cancers and also uh, save uh, cost dollar money for, for the healthcare in terms of prevention and, and treatment of some of these HPV-related cancers. Um, so what to look for is really if, if a patient is not vaccinated, they should discuss with their primary care physician or pediatrician and getting the HPV vaccine. Uh, this vaccine in the United States, um, it's, we are currently using a vaccine called Gardasil that covers nine different types of HPV, uh, some of which are associated with genital warts, but they're also responsible of some of the oral warts. Uh, patients always think about warts as the genital area, but we can also develop um, oral warts that are HPV related. We call them papilloma or verruca vulgaris, 
Um, in some immunocompromised patients, uh, these patients may develop um, condylomas that are also HPV related. These are benign lesions that can be prevented by the vaccine. And the vaccine was initially prevent initially developed, as John said, uh, to prevent cervical cancers, but it's now approved also for other cancers, including the oropharyngeal cancers. And the CDC recommends HPV vaccination uh, for years for 11 and 12 years old, but uh, the series can be started as early as nine years old. Uh, in fact, the American Cancer Society um, is uh, recommending to start around the age of nine. And the vaccination is available for everyone through the age of 26 years, if not vaccinated already. And following discussion with the primary care physician, some adults that are at a higher risk between the age of 25 and 45 years uh, may also uh, receive the HPV vaccine. So we are very lucky today to have this cancer prevention uh, tool available. And uh, I'm a dentist by training. Interestingly enough, there are some states now that allow dentists to vaccinate against HPV as well. Uh, some of these states are Oregon, Indiana, uh, Massachusetts, and I'm, I'm expecting things to change rapidly also in other states and, and maybe Florida as well. So we're very excited about having dental providers involved also in immunization practices um, to, to prevent these cancers because we have a very effective tool available. And as Dr. As Dr. Diaz was mentioning earlier, we know from states, um, from countries where they have good vaccination campaigns that the HPV cancer vaccination can prevent cancer. Um, if we look at studies from Sweden, for example, they have shown that HPV cancer vaccination prevented um, cancers at the population level with up to with a 88% um, reduction of um, HPV related cervical cancers or precancer. So um, we really need, we can do better here in the United States. Um, there's several um, colleagues that are actively involved in this research, like Dr. Diaz and myself and, and several others. So um, more to come, but we still have a lot of work to do. Alessandro, you don't see patients in my office who come in with uh, abnormal pap smears, HPV positive pap smears. And, you know, obviously I'm focused on cervical cancer prevention, uh, vaginal and vulvar cancer prevention, um, but they'll often ask me about what other uh, things they should be worried about, what else they can do, what they can do for their partner. So I do talk to them about HP vaccination if they haven't yet completed it. Um, and that was good information as far as, you know, giving them things to look out for as signs or symptoms of something else going on. Um, anything in particular that I should be doing as a gynecologist uh, or anything else you would tell our primary care physicians who also oftentimes manage um, abnormal pap smears as far as how do you counsel your patients on what to do to prevent, uh, what to do to look out? Um, I know there might be other risk factors, right? I, I know tobacco use for cervical cancer is an independent risk factor. Uh, I'm assuming for oral uh, and head and neck cancers that HP and tobacco use. So anything else we can tell our patients uh, that you would tell, again, a practicing gynecologist or primary care physician to look out for? Absolutely. You bring up a, a, an excellent point. Uh, the provider, we know that provider's recommendation is the best predictor for vaccination. 
um, and therefore having uh, uh, a direct discussion with the patient on possible risk factors of cancers and the HPV vaccine as a prevention tool is the best way to educate our patients and our colleagues. Uh, when we look at oropharyngeal cancers, as I mentioned earlier, more than 70% of these cancers are HPV related. Uh, but uh, heavy tobacco smoking and heavy alcohol consumption are also what we call the traditional risk factor for oral cavity and oropharyngeal cancers. And therefore, having a discussion with the patient provides really a unique opportunity for prevention in the future, not only related to HPV-related cancers, but also the so-called conventional risk factor like heavy tobacco smoking and uh, alcohol consumption. Um, some of the oral cavity cancers and oropharyngeal cancers are also caused by other carcinogens, um, mostly in South Asian countries, but we are also seeing some patients here in Miami uh, with this habit where patients chew tobacco mixed with betel nut and quid, which are um, highly carcinogenic and can cause some of the oral precancers uh, and uh, some of the mouth cancers. So um, usually uh, these are again are more common in South Asian countries like in India, but we're seeing more and more of these cases also here in the United States. So uh, not only HPV is responsible for these cancers, but again, heavy tobacco smoking and alcohol consumption are, are causing some of these cancers. And we also know that for the oropharyngeal area, if a patient is a, is a tobacco smoker, that alone increases the chances of getting a mouth and oral HPV infection. So you have two risks at the same, two risk factors at the same times, which increases the odds for patients for developing some of these oropharyngeal cancers. Um, I, I always recommend patients to take a look inside the mouth, um, you know, once every other month. It's very, it's very quick. And it's if they see a bump or a sore that doesn't heal or any bleeding that doesn't resolve in a couple of weeks or any pain that doesn't resolve in a couple of weeks um, in the mouth usually deserve attention. So visit your dentist. Uh, we are also available here at MCI. We have a new service, oral medicine service that specializes on oral mucosal diseases, including precancers of the mouth. So we are happy to help and, and see these patients. So in a way, it's it's when you look at the natural history of oropharyngeal or oral cavity cancers, is not that different from cervical cancers. Um, like you said, there's cervical precancers and there are also oral precancers. One of the barriers that we have in the oropharyngeal area is that we don't know um, if there are precancers because it's not easily accessible. So uh, that goes back to the problem of not having a, a valid screening tool for the throat and oropharyngeal area. And hopefully future research will help us in this field. So despite our best efforts, as I said earlier, we still see about 14,000 new cervical cancer cases a year. Uh, again, South Florida, just because of the nature, as we talked about earlier, about uh, patients coming from outside the U.S. who may not have access to programs. And so oftentimes we'll treat these patients with therapeutics. And one of the medications that's become more and more common in the treatment disease is a medication called bevacizumab. Uh, and this is a medication which can cause some oral toxicity to our patients. We can get sometimes bleeding gums and things of that nature. And so, you know, it's great having you here to join MCI, but we now have as a resource. Can you talk a little bit about what those of us that are here, but also those that are outside MCI, um, where we can go to get more information? How do we get patients to see you? And what does your service line do to help our patients 
who are on chemotherapy, uh, but are just struggling with these oral toxicities that frankly, we don't know, at least as a gynecologist, how well to manage. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for, for saying that. Um, here at the Miami Cancer Institute, we now have a new service called Oral Medicine and Oral Oncology. Uh, this really bridges the gap between medicine and dentistry. Oral medicine specialists are board certified physicians that specialize in um, mouth sores and any other mouth related issue. And specifically, we accompany cancer patients during their cancer journey and following cancer therapy, um, patients undergoing targeted therapy or chemotherapy. Uh, most of them develop some sort of oral toxicities. These can range from severe salivary gland hypofunction, so patients complain of dry mouth. And one of the classic signs, for example, is that they walk around with a little bottle of water because they always have dry mouth. Um, some other targeted agents can cause bleeding. Uh, bevacizumab is one of them. It can cause gingival bleeding, spontaneous gingival bleeding. And then there are other agents that are associated with severe ulcerations, pain, discomfort. And, and our goal is really to help patients improve their quality of life during treatment and after treatment, some of these oral complications are acute. Um, they develop during chemotherapy, and then they tend to resolve once chemotherapy is completed. But there are other oral toxicities and oral complications that are chronic, and patients may deal with these complications for the rest of their lives. And for example, when we consider oropharyngeal cancer, uh, most of patients are treated either with surgery or radiation and chemo or a combination of one of the three. And the radiation has devastating effects on in the oral cavity. Patients may develop osteoradionecrosis, which is a complication that affects the jaw bones. They may develop dry mouth, as I mentioned earlier, which ultimately leads also to several uh, dental caries, development of rampant decays and uh, infections such as oral candidiasis, which is one of the most common fungal infections. So um, as oral medicine specialists, we are here to help patients that undergo uh, cancer therapy for the in case they develop any mouth complications during or after uh, chemotherapy. And it's a unique service. Uh, there's only uh, a few of us in the state of Florida and really in the United States. And I think that we are very lucky to have a service like oral medicine and oral oncology within Baptist Health, where we can help patients also with oral complications from cancer therapy. Excellent. So my take-home message um, is for providers to be sure to educate your patients, you know, make sure that they understand the importance of HPV vaccination. I think the other misconception is, well, I have an abnormal pap smear. I've already been exposed to one HPV strand. Is a really benefit to the vaccine? And, and I tell them, absolutely. You know, uh, we may not know exactly which HPV strand you've been exposed to. Uh, and so even if you didn't receive it, uh, or if you're that generation that well, you didn't have that offer with adolescence, there still potentially would be benefit. Um, and so also talking with providers that any opportunity they can to discuss this and other HPV vaccines we should tackle, because this is a completely, at least from a GUN standpoint, preventable disease. Um, and so we talk to our patients about age vaccination um, and as well as routine cervical cancer screening. Again, uh, we've done ourselves a little bit of disservice in that we changed it from every year. And, and I think that's really had a negative impact. And that's why we've seen a little bit of an increase in the incidence uh, as of late. 
Um, Asana, anything that you would want to share with the providers for today as far as take-home points from our uh, discussion? Yeah, absolutely. I think that the take-home message for oral cavity and oropharyngeal cancer is that it's important to see your dentist or primary care physician, especially if you have any of those signs and symptoms that I was describing earlier. And as providers, we have a unique opportunity to educate patients around the risk factors of oral cavity cancers and oropharyngeal cancers uh, from tobacco and alcohol consumption. And as I'm, and obviously, as we talked today about HPV high risk um, type of infections, and if patients develop um, any complications from cancer therapy, um, these negatively affect the quality of life of patients. And we are lucky enough to to have a service that can help your patients here at Miami Cancer Institute. So we are we are available. We are happy to to um, to work with you in the community to make sure that um, cancer patients are accompanied during their journey. Fantastic. Thanks a lot for having me today. I really learned a lot. And uh, actually, I sent you a patient today. So uh, (laughs) there you go. Collaborations, right? Uh, Thank you all for joining and have a good night. Thank you. To find out more about the topics covered on the Doc to Doc podcast, please visit physicianresources.baptisthealth.net.